Good morning, marketers, and welcome to the If You Market podcast. We are the only podcast that markets the shit out of it. We're brought to you by Mountaintop Data, and uh, I'm your host, Sky Cassidy. Today, we're talking with Brian McMahone. He's the, uh, the head guy over there at Expert Dojo. Been on the show before. Really glad to have you back, Brian. Today, we're going to be talking about the, the marketing to sell your business versus your product. So when you know eventually you want to sell your business, again, thanks for, uh, thanks for coming back on for this one. Awesome. Yeah. Hey, that's what's what it's all about, right? Is making the money from the money. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I mean, I reached out to you to say, hey, can you suggest anybody for this? I know you're involved in this type of stuff, but thank you for, for volunteering yourself for it. I'd much rather talk to you again than some stranger. Um, but thanks, this- brother. Uh, no, I'll, I'll bring in, look, the stuff you talk about is super important. And at the end of the day, everybody wants to get to a place where they can just be financially free, right? And and kind of step one to that is, hey, I'm going to start a company and I'm going to like make revenue in and I'm not going to be answerable to anyone else, but I probably am going to work harder than I ever worked before, right? But I'm not going to be answerable. And then step two is, I, I said it to my kid the other day, like he, he said to me, you know, you know, daddy, what if, uh, you know, one of the companies made, you know, made you whatever, hundreds of millions of dollars. And I'm like, son, I just got two things to teach you. Like number one, the magic number is 12.5 million. Like that's the magic number in the world. If you have $12.5 million, you can live happily for the rest of your life. Like don't do any dumb divorce, any habits, don't do anything silly, but 12.5 million, you can live for the rest of your life perfectly happily. So when you're 16, 17, 18, you should have that number right there in the front of your mind. Like you, you can have a billion or 2 billion or 5 billion, but all that's BS, right? The real right. number is 12.5 million. You're going to be very happy. You get a nice house. You live great. You're not answerable to anyone. You don't have to get up at any hour of the morning. You just live your life out well. And then the second lesson is just don't be an idiot and waste it right. in, in Vegas. Did, <laughs> did you also tell them, by the way, if I sell a company for that much, you're not getting it dying. Get <laughs> no back done. to doing your homework. <laughs> he, he knows I'm a mean, cheap yeah. Irishman. <laughs> <laughs> you have to make your own 12.5 million. That's a really important part there. Correct. The lottery has proven that. Um, <laughs> So the general concept here, I feel like there's a couple different types of businesses and maybe people aren't thinking of this sometimes. There's the general startup idea of I'm going to make a tech company or whatever type of company. It's going to get huge and I'm going to be famous and rich and running around telling people what to do. Um, And then, you know, maybe people are good at it and they succeed at getting somewhere along that path and find out that, they are not the person to be running around and telling people what to do. Just they're not good enough at it at that scale, whatever it is. Or they find out in their industry, you either get crushed by larger companies or bought by larger companies. I feel like there's a lot of that where large companies are watching certain types of companies and the way they manage their market is when competition comes up, you know, let's take the silver or the lead kind of the business version. It's either yeah. we're going to compete with you aggressively and, and destroy you, or you can sell to us. And I think not enough people realize that path of once you get to a certain valuation, you're probably going to start getting offers. And maybe some people that's really, they want to get to that path. But the, what I really want to cover today is what can people who have that goal, they have a small business and they're saying, I'd like to sell this for 10 million, 20 million, hundred million, whatever it is, 1 million. Um, how can they market themselves 
So not their product XYZ widget or service, but what can they be doing that's not a full-time job? I think a lot of startups, basically the, the founder's full-time job are all to, to find investors and find buyers. And that's a, kind of all they, they focus on a yeah. lot. But they have their full-time job. What can they be doing on the side that's marketing or making their company look appealing to buyers for when that's going to happen? So I'll start with a, a little story. Uh, about a company that we had a little while back. And this particular company had raised around. So so to your point, there's kind of two companies. There's a, there are companies that start with the intention to sell. And then there are companies that start with the intention to grow. I think most small, medium-sized companies start with the intention to grow. And then they reach a stage where the company becomes attractive to sell, right? Most tech companies or tech-enabled companies start with the intention to sell because they need to raise money immediately because they have to scale quickly immediately. And investors will only invest if they can scale quickly immediately. Right. We, we so sit the, in the, the profit uh, model doesn't work unless you're going to sell. Basically you're correct. You're, you're yeah. building something you're taking on debt and the way out of it is to sell kind of almost the only way out of it is to sell. Yeah. And, and I think we talked about this before where the vast majority of companies that you're going to have are, are it, it, the vast majority of companies that we invest in will never make money. Bizarrely enough, right? And nor is the intent for them to make money. The intent for them is to scale really quickly and to be attractive for a larger competitor or attractive for somebody who wants to acquire them for whatever reason that might be, or that they go public and then they have the ability to make money in the future. While mom and pop businesses, the immediate need is to create a EBITDA businesses, a business that can actually create profits that can actually generate revenue for them. So is one like buying a house to rent it out and get a little yeah. bit of extra income and the other is like exactly. flipping houses kind of. Like yeah. no interest in keeping this house. You're just going to buy it and resell it. A hundred percent. You just nailed it. That's actually a great analogy. Like you hear about flippers who, who like buy 20, 30, 50 houses during a period of time. And then they're continually building them, getting them ready, flipping them, selling them, buying another one, then buying 10, then buying 20, buying 50. Like that's really what a, a Facebook or a, a high growth startup is doing. But the principle is exactly the same. They need to find a product that needs to have a solution. They need to make sure that they have that solution to a problem which other people were not able to solve sufficiently well. And they need to build a company in a very similar building block way to the mom and pop type businesses, right? But they're, but they're two different rows. So we had one of our companies who came through, they remember the, with these high scaling companies, their intention is to raise more money all the time, right? So they raised their first amount of money, raised about a million, a million and a half dollars, did extremely well doing that. And then over a period of time, they realized it was going to be difficult for them to be able to maintain the growth that they had had previously. And they realized they had about nine months of runway left on their, in the cash of money that they had left in the bank. So they knew they had to do something about it. So they pulled together a list of the top hundred most desirable suitors in their case, right? We're going to talk about lots of tactics, but I thought theirs was just a really great case because it was very specific and it was successful. So they chose the, the top hundred best suitors for your company. Now you, your, your audience may say, well, how do I know the best suitors for your company? It's like, well, how do you know the best suitors for a relationship? You know, there are certain characteristics that just make sense. So, for example, if I'm building a tech enable, if I'm building a tech platform that helps commercial real estate get done in a simpler and better way, maybe I'm building a hot desking software, which is for commercial real estate. So, okay, who are the people who are in my ecosystem? Well, we know that there are the, the, the brokers, 
like the CBREs, the Jones Lang LaSalle's, the DTZs, all of the big brokers in the space, would they have a potential need for a software that can make the leasing of office space more easier for them? Yes, right? Who else could potentially need this? Well, we know that all of the folks that are actually in the space that are parallel in the space, and they might be the people that are the furniture guys within the buildings. They might be the guys who are the REITs. They could be the people who own the office buildings themselves. They could be the people who are the facilities companies that are in that space. Like anyone that is part of that ecosystem, like you literally, all you have to do is spend a couple of days Googling the word commercial real estate right. and your top 50 and then what you do is you look amongst those people which is exactly what this company does and you say who are the folks now remember in their case they were not worried about anything anti-competitive they were not worried about non-disclosure agreements they weren't worried because they knew they had to sell they knew they had a window of nine months and they had to find the right buyer. If they didn't find the right buyer, they probably were not going to be able to raise any more money and they probably were not going to be able to uh, escape out of the situation they were in. So they were so, in a bizarre kind of sell or die situation where they had value, but not for long. Yeah, which a lot of companies are in. Like nobody ever says it. It's a bit like the person who leases a Porsche, right? Mm -hmm. They won't tell you that actually that lease is costing them right up to the edge of what they're getting in for their salary or their wages that day, but, but they know, <laughs> right? So, and so with a lot of companies, as they're building their company, they know that, that they're in a situation whereby maybe in six months time, they're not going to be able to continue for, for whatever reasons. And I think to your point, we'll cover a couple of different folks in, in a couple of different scenarios. But with these guys, they found their hundred companies, they reached out to them and they said, look, we have a phenomenal software. This software is incredibly important to you in X. And um, we believe that we're going to be acquired within the next six to nine months because we feel that for the development of the software, it needs to be done within a company that have the ability to be able to scale it in a larger way through the organization that are there. We have carefully looked through the companies and we have taken you as a potential company that we would like to have a further conversation regarding that. Can you let me know a time that you'd, have a, you'd like to have a conversation? From the 100 companies they wrote to, how many would you say responded? Uh, I would say really depends on my next question. Who do they reach out to with that message? Is it just sales, sales or CEO? Okay. They reached out to CEO. Like the great thing yeah. about LinkedIn Navigator these days is that you can pretty much reach anyone, right? It's very easy to find out who's the CEO. Now the CEO, let's say Salesforce were one of those companies. Uh, is the CEO in Salesforce the one, the best one to write for, or is it the chief um, investment officer? Are, is it the COO? Um, look, it has to be one of those top three or four people there. And there's an argument to say that you may actually want to spread the message between all four, right? May not want to actually just keep it to one of them. But in, in generality, the CEO is the person who runs that organization. Mm -hmm. And unless you can find a better person in the organization who is in charge of, of mergers and acquisitions, in charge of new innovations, or in charge of new investment, you want to go to the top of the pile and work your way down. Right. Okay. So yeah, mergers, acquisitions. And that was one of my big questions was somebody has a company, they want to, they want to think of selling it. Yeah. Who do, cause if you reach out to sales at info at, if you send an email there or whoever comes up first on LinkedIn for a company, you know, you're just, you're blowing wind, but go to the CEO, COO, mergers and acquisitions, chief investment officer, 
go to anywhere, all of those people basically and yeah. say, yeah. Say, hey, yeah. we're and, recording you for you to buy us. <laughs> yeah, because the, the, the challenge with some of the other titles is that they just don't know what to do with it. The head of sales is responsible for just running sales. Yeah. Right. And yes, it's not there's their a job. Yeah, you got to approach their, the right people, job, right? You have to market he to the right audience. Yeah, head of marketing, exactly the same. While the CEO, they want legacy. Like they want legacy. Everybody else actually, in, it involves extra work unless it's their job. That's why I always point out the head of merger and acquisitions, head, head of investment, head of innovation. Like it's their job is to find new innovation outside generally because most of the innovation inside is going to be dead. But the CEO... Their job is legacy. I actually have, there's a company here, which is called, um, I think it's E2Fax. And they're a fascinating company to watch because they were part of the fax revolution. Like you remember the fax, you probably don't, I don't know. Mate, I remember the fax revolution, right? When fax was something new. Yeah. Now, I don't even know if anybody knows what a fax is. <laughs> but, but back in those days, like everything was coming through by fax. It was just before email. And and they were huge and you would pay whatever 20 cents or whatever to get a fax through and people who did faxes were huge. And you would have thought that as soon as email came in and mobile phones became huge and then faxes disappeared, that faxes would be nothing. But actually, that's not what happened. What happened we was- We still sometimes fax stuff. Yeah. yeah, right. And attorneys, oh, they live by faxes. Accountants, they still haven't worked out how to use Gmail. So you've got just a lot of organizations where actually you have to send something by fax for it to be legally addressed to the people that it's actually going to go to. Yeah. So these guys, rather than charging like 20 cents or two cents or whatever it was, they charged like $2, but that wasn't how they made their money. What they decided was that the way a company grows is through acquisition. And they acquired one company every single year, sometimes more than one company for 20 years. And if you look at their share price, they're a multi-billion dollar company today. And they still do the same thing they did before, but they've made all of these acquisitions of these companies, which now means that the whole organization through from the other stuff is an absolute monster company that retained its place as the, as the head of the pile. Now look on the opposite end of the spectrum. Right. So and instead of selling themselves, they bought other people, which they bought, is where yeah. you could look at a company like that and say, uh, so I want to, you want to look at the opposite end of the spectrum, but to answer your earlier question out of a hundred, if they're targeting the right types of companies, companies that either have a need for what they do would be a good value add, um, or companies that are similar to companies that have bought companies like them. Um, so if you look at your competitors, who has bought your competitors, and you're not going to sell to the same company probably because they already bought a competitor of yours, yep. but who are their competitors? Now, if they don't have one of you, they're probably looking. Then I would imagine because I took a call earlier today and told the person I took this call because it's my job, that 100 out of 100, maybe 99 out of 100, they got a response from because that's the job of the person they're reaching out to. So they got response from 33%, which is a pretty good ratio actually to come back. You know, remember life is funny. You know, somebody, yeah. a CEO might be going through a divorce. A CEO might be busy. They may, may not want to touch it. And actually, I just want to speak to a couple of the points you made. I was being really very optimistic. Yeah. But, but so, but, but 33% is great. If you think about it, mm. if, you know, if you were trying to find a date in a bar and like 33% of people, you'd be very happy, right? Well, you'd be, be in trouble because you'd have a bunch of angry <laughs> women that you had 33% of the bar. <laughs> I, I was leaving it yeah. non-gender specific, right? Luckily, so, businesses aren't monogamous. So, <laughs> so, but if you look like this, you could actually go to somebody who had bought one of your competitors because maybe they want to shut you down. 
Mm-hmm. Like take what's happening with TikTok right now. TikTok have to sell. They have absolutely no choice. Look at exactly what they did. Trump's shall be no more. And then within a moment, TikTok knew that they had 30, 60, 90 days, whatever the time was to sell their company. And then look at what they specifically did. They did exactly what this small startup that we're talking about right now did. They reached out quietly to the folks that they thought would be best placed to be able to buy their company. And then there were other people who came in from the outside. So look at Triller, like Triller or cheap coffee of TikTok, but they're doing quite well over in Europe. And Triller knew that there was great um, that they knew they went with a private bank and they put in an offer for TikTok. Now, did they do it because of publicity? Did they do it because they really believe that they have a chance of being able to buy a multi-billion dollar company? Who knows? But there's lots of people that could be interested for lots of reasons. Maybe, to your point, the competitor who bought, the company who bought your competitor actually wants to buy you to destroy your company. Well, right. The competition. That's okay. You either destroy or you buy in order to eliminate the competition. But but you know what? That's okay. Because as long as they give me my price, if my price just so happens to be 12 and a half million, which is my topical number for the golden hay, if it's 12 and a half million and they give me 12 and a half million to squish me down, well, that's fine. I'm going to buy my nice little house and go away. And me, my wife, my little boy are going to be very happy, right? Right. And it's not necessarily, I mean, they're going to absorb your customers. They're going to absorb your business book, they're not really destroying you, they're absorbing you, um, so they don't have to compete with you. Yeah. But that's the goal. So, I, so you're saying there's collaborators where you are a good fit to add on to their company as a piece, and then there's people who just absorb you to get you out of the way or to, you know, to, to control more of the market um, type of thing. Absolutely. I feel like- and- and most people will do the second, by the way, even if they feel like they're collaborators. If we look at most of the mergers and acquisitions that have happened over the years, you find the vast majority of them end up turning those companies into next to nothing. Like if you look at WhatsApp, they were allowed to stay, but they were only allowed to stay because of the benefit that they could give to Facebook. Um, and, and if we fast forward 15, 20 years in the future, will WhatsApp even exist or will Facebook have their own WhatsApp? You know, so, so the, 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 the time, normally the idea is to make the parent stronger. It's not about the parent being there to actually make the child stronger in the case of mergers and acquisitions. It's about to go further. And it brings up another important topic, which is why are you doing this, Mr. or Mrs. Founder? You know, why are you really doing it? And what are the really important things to you? And, and, and we can start it off by saying, yeah, we want to sell it because we want to make money. But then we have to go deeper into, but why did you start your company? And what did you want your company to become? Because that's really going to, for, for the founders that we're speaking about in this example, it's very specific to them. They had an idea. They solved the problem. They knew that they had spent a certain amount of investor money to build it. They knew that they would not be able to take it all away. They came to a realization. It's like a marathon at mile 14. They knew they weren't going to be able to take it all the way to the end of the marathon. And they said, okay, great. We need to get out. We need to make sure that we safeguard ourselves. We need to make sure that we make some money for ourselves. And we need to make sure that we safeguard our investors. Like their intention was very pure. So for them, they don't care. Like whatever happens with the product afterwards is entirely irrelevant. The only thing that's relevant is can we make sure that we can get out of this in a safe way? So they got their 33 companies that came back. They then got into meaningful conversations with between 10 and 12 of those companies. Um, it actually fit 
because their initial outreach was very carefully curated, it was very carefully worded when they wrote to those people, they didn't send a hundred emails, which were all the same with two words changed in the email. Each company was carefully researched so they could say, we saw you did this, 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 and this in a short email. It should never be longer than three paragraphs. I love that. Wow. Three paragraphs. I'd say if each paragraph is a sentence, maybe because when you're reaching out to a CEO, they don't have a lot of time on a cold email. If I see three paragraphs and they're large, no small, unless that subject line really caught my attention. Typically, if I read the first paragraph and I can respond based on that, I will, if I'm interested, if I have to keep reading the next two to know if I'm interested, I'm not interested. I don't have time for it. So it would be something like this. It would be the subject line would be opportunity to acquire a fast growing stealth company. Then you'd go to the first paragraph based on you really being successful in this area. We believe that our company, which is growing at a strong rate, would actually allow you to scale at a faster rate because of bleep. But like a sentence and a half, two sentences. Right. Let's talk. Next, um. <laughs> yeah. No, well, next paragraph, you have to tell them a little bit about you, right? So you have to give them a little bit. They have to understand who you are and you have to have a link to your, to your website in there so they can get a feel for it. So the next paragraph is, we've started our company four years ago with the intention to do this within this space, which should be in relation to what this company really likes. Here's a little bit about our company. Next paragraph. I would be very happy to elaborate in a phone call after we get a non-disclosure signed. Please let me know if you're interested. Boom. That's it. Simple, separated, takes no longer than 30 seconds to read, digest the message and make a decision. And then you've got to say to yourself, if I'm a CEO and I can say that there's a great opportunity and look, we can be pedantic and I'm sure people will think, well, no, Brian, you should change the first paragraph. This, like what I'm just saying is off the cuff, right? So we can be pedantic about like how it's, how we phrase it and what we put in there and should we put special offer or not put special offer, but it should be very compelling to the CEO. It should be, they should feel that it's not cheap. It's yeah. not a spam. It's not a special offer today. You can win a company. Right? You're trying to sell your company for tens of millions of dollars and you say Labor Day sale at the beginning. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, and then it should just be really simple. You should be, you should be speaking to the fact of what that person is going through. And bear in mind, every single CEO on the planet is looking for legacy. I promise you, like Elon Musk, he may be a founder. He may be worth tens of billions of dollars. The only thing he cares about is legacy. And whether you founded the company yourself or whether you're the person who's going to turn it into what it's going to become, you want to be able to say, I did this. And this should not equal something worse than before you took over. So speak to the legacy that can be there for the CEO of the company and the benefit that can be there, but keep it really short. And your only intention is to arrange a telephone call, which will then either be followed by a non-disclosure or a confidentiality agreement, or it will be precipitated by it. Excellent. So that gets into an interesting area of this. You have a small to medium business. They think they're going to be interested in selling or maybe at some point in the future. We jump straight into like, we're we're pushing hard to sell. I am going to want at some point get back to the, what about I may want to sell over the next 10 years? What can I put out there type For of sure. thing? This is really an active, I got to sell in the next 
and then in the next year type of thing we've been on. But um, the non-disclosure issue and the, you know, you want to sell to somebody and they say, great, show me your books, but you can't show the books. Maybe you're selling to a competitor even. Um, maybe you're selling to somebody that would want to, basically wants to remove you as potential competition. Mm -hmm. How much and how often for the non-savvy, small to medium business person who doesn't, you know, hasn't done a lot of merger and acquisition stuff, do they need to get a lawyer? How much should they show before they, um, before they get this non-disclosure, what's even safe to show during. And then, so I'll pile all these questions on you. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've had people call me and say, Hey, or, or email me, whatever it is, say interested in buying your business. And I'll always talk to them. And I'm always a little cautious of how much is this person's company interested in buying my business and how much are they really a competitor that's just fishing for information. Yeah. Um, type of thing. Random people come at you out of nowhere. You haven't been putting yourself out there. It's not a company you know of, some random company that supposedly does this. And they're, they're kind of fishing in your company. So what should people do to protect themselves when it comes to non-disclosure, giving out limited information, getting lawyers, that kind of stuff? Yeah, so all phenomenal points. Like we all know in non-disclosure, like we live in the Socialist Republic of California. So non-disclosure here is uh, about as much use as a kick in the ass. You know, there's like, there's, you're never going to be able to protect yourself. Even if you could protect yourself with a non-disclosure in court, you'd never be able to afford the money to be able to fight the case to protect yourself. Unfortunately, right. it's just one of the very sad situations that's actually out there. But at least you feel good that you have a nice piece of paper with somebody's signature on it, right? Um, but then the second thing is, if you have an attorney, if you have a bulldog of an attorney, then that will, that will I don't want to say scare folks away, but like... Uh, corporations don't come in for a fight. They come in to pillage. So if they can get a really simple opportunity, you know, as a band of Vikings coming into a village that has no army, then they're going to go to that village with no army as opposed to the village next door that has an army protecting it. So you get yourself a good, always have a good bulldog of an attorney around you. Always have somebody who's protecting you, who's actually writing some of the letters, sending it out. Like that will help because, mm -hmm. you know, it's not, it's not that they, um, not they won't steal from you. They will. Everybody will steal from you. Assume that they want to steal from you. Assume if you let you, them, they will. If you let them, right? Mm -hmm. um, but also work on the basis that they're also busy people and they don't want to get tied up. And like, I know somebody today who's going to be the next two weeks in, in litigation for, for something. They, they don't want to do that. That's a pain because that's two weeks of their, of their life gone that they can't make money and do things on other stuff. So they want to stay away from that if they can. But if you let them, and most people do, then they will come into the chicken coop and they will take everything from you. So you should have high level stuff that you do. Most people have got data, what's called a data room. And a data room is really the place that you put. It can be, it can be um, anything from in your G Suite that you can put it in there. Uh, you can keep it in one of the large file areas. You can keep it in a central server area. There are special data room websites that you can find as well. And really a data room is like a filing cabinet. And the filing cabinet has got multiple drawers in it. And each of those drawers has got a key. And you decide who gets the key for what. So if you take like Expert Dojo, for example, my company, who are an investor in early stage startups. Let's say somebody was coming to me and they wanted to buy our company. Um, I know that in one of my drawers, I have all of the safe notes or the convertible notes or the equity notes for every single company we've invested in. There's no way on God's blue earth that I'm going to, uh, green planet, that I'm going to make sure that these guys are going to get access to those convertible notes. But 
If they want to get access to my investor deck, that's okay. If they want to get access to my, uh, my financials, in certain cases, that's going to be okay if we have moved far enough along in the conversation. I don't mind that so much because one thing is knowing my financials. Another thing is achieving my financials. So I don't mind showing the financials if I know that they're serious. So for example, going back to the case that we had of the 12 companies, I would not be showing financials yet. I would be talking about financials. But when I whittle them down to three or four in a two-way interview, which these guys did, then I know I have to show my financials. I know I have to show the business plan. I know that they're going to want to see details on employees. So they're going to want to see contracts on employees. Do I have people on HR? I'm sorry, on 1099s? Do I have people on W-2s? If I have people on W-2s, are they in good standing? Because now I'm down to my three companies that are saying, and I've also ascertained, it's a good idea for them to buy from me at a specific price. We've already got to a general understanding of where the price will be because we've worked our way there based on what they see as our value and based on how and when and our circumstances for selling, right? Based so you on where show them the goods basically after you've, you've established um, a baseline. So you, you yeah. establish a, the potential for a purchase based on assumptions first, and then yeah. you can show them the supporting information. Just rather than even assumptions, it's, it is based on general fact. Or based on just, trust. Uh, what I mean is they have to yeah, trust. Based it. on trust. Exactly. You're saying we make this much money. You're not going to exactly. show them the bank statements yet. Yeah, you're not going into my bank statements yet. I'm not going to show you my full financial statements yet. But I will show you all of these things once we, if we agree. If I'm telling you right now that I make a million dollars a year, and I'm telling you right now that all of my HR stuff is in good standing, and I tell you right now that we have accounts details going back the last couple of years. And I tell you that there's no major liabilities on my balance sheet or anything else. And I'm saying to you, based on all of that, I believe the price is going to be $8 million for argument's sake. And you say to me, well, I'll give you $6 million, possibly if everything pans out and we really love this place. Now we've got at least, a, we've, we've a groundwork to work from. You know, I know the right. guy stroke girl is not a schmuck. I know that we're in a, we're in a, in a relevant, we're within 20, 50% of each other. And I know that I can wow them based on all of the stuff that's going to come in the future once I start showing. So now I start bringing them through. And then what will happen is we will start to come to an understanding and we may have a memorandum of understanding that may come through. Um, are there maybe a term sheet that will come through? At this stage, me personally, because my customer contracts are so incredibly important to us, I, our safe notes, but it might be your contracts with your customers with their names and emails and details. Like even at that stage, I'm still not showing them those contracts. Only after that stage am I showing those contracts. And even at that stage, I'm still not showing them any of the customer details on those contracts. What we will do is I will make it contingent to that. Right. I'll allow them to speak to a few customers if they like to. They can choose them out randomly. And I'll say, hey, you want to speak to two or three? No problem. Choose them randomly and you can talk to them. But if they want to see all of my customer information, I will make the contract uh, subject to that customer information. Now, even that is not foolproof. But at least we're at a stage where I'm not showing every bozo that walks past my, my, my store what every single thing about me. Right. Yeah, that's, I think that's the big concern in that showing somebody to buy. How much are you getting? There's this story, I believe, um, of uh, Steve Jobs going to visit, maybe it was Xerox, something like that. And uh, probably getting some of this wrong. But I believe he, he took 
like a meeting with them to show some side project that there was no interest in that actually turned out to be a big part of, of, of Apple and how it worked. And um, just so he could see what it was and how it was and get demos on the stuff so that they could basically steal it. Mm -hmm. um, and so companies do that. If you show people everything, they may not have any real interest in, in buying from you. Um, so I guess that was the, that whole area really is in that, Hey, be careful. Companies don't, don't, you don't just be careful. Like assume everybody is out to kill you. Everybody assume there are no friendlies. Look, if you had the option, if you got two choices, choice number one, I can spend $20 million buying this company. Choice number two, I can spend $2 million getting my internal team to copy everything that you've done and get your, get our revenue to where your revenue is within a short period of time. You are going to choose choice number two, right? Because you're not an idiot, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and, and by the way, the, the, uh, somebody described it to me today. It's like bad people don't think that they're bad people, <laughs> right? They just feel that they see the world in a different way. Like, and I don't know if they're a sociopath or they're just a bad person or they're just have a lack of understanding of human nature, but they see the world in a different way. What they see it as, hey, you know what? It's a it's game a at a point though. Like they may be exactly. bad to you, because their goals are not yours, but they're good to them and they're good to their employees and they're good to their customers and they're good to, um, but what they want might not be good for you. So they're the bad yes. guy to you, just like in a sport, you have two sides. One side's not the good guy and the bad guy, but they're good guys and bad guys to each other. Um, so yeah, their, their goal might be to defeat you, not necessarily, and, and if buying you isn't the easiest way, and then you let them inside, they're, they're, they're going to do some damage possibly. So l let me then give an extreme opposite example of how you, how you do this the other way. Because in the way that I just mentioned there, the problem is you just have to assume that there's a massively high risk of somebody taking terrible advantage of you. And yeah, we build in some safeguards and yeah, we make sure that it's okay. But in reality, we never really can, right? We just hope that it works out okay. Now, on the other side, it's much better. So the other side is you start a company, you build a company. What well, the mistake most people do is they wait until they build up really strong revenue and they're in a really strong position before they even start thinking about selling the company. Right. And that's what the purpose I, of this podcast is saying yes. you might want to sell in five years. What are the little things to do now? Yes. So I want you just to take the example I said at the beginning as your blueprint about how you actually build your domain expertise within the space that you're in, but without being that aggressive. Mm -hmm. So you want to say to yourself, okay, like for example, take me as, a, I'll use us as an example because it's just a very easy one and we're not looking to sell, right? But we are looking to be the best accelerator in the world. And the best accelerator in the world doesn't necessarily mean that we make more money or because we have a better model. It's that the startups who come through us have a better success, right? right? But that would position us as the greatest accelerator in the world. And in my mind, right or wrong, and there's not a doubt in my mind that we will reach that status, right? Now that might take a year, it might take five years, it might take 10 years, who knows what it's going to be. But if I've already assumed that that's going to be the case, then we become extremely desirable as an acquisition target to all of the large VCs who are looking to get access to the early stage, um, early stage companies, right? So the Sequoias, the SoftBanks, the NEAs, the Lightspeeds, all of the venture capitalists around the world. So what should I be doing today? Man, I should be their friends, right? Now, I know in my case, we are aligned anyway, because I need them to invest in later stage round for my startups, but I need to become closer with them. And I need to be the greatest promoter of me on the planet, right. aka being here on a podcast with you talking about 
my expertise, my domain expertise. So you're doing basically account-based marketing specifically to them just so they know who your brand is and that you guys are attractive in your space. Correct. I market to potential buyers of my company on exactly the same level that I, being Expert Dojo, market to early stage startups to invest uh, for us to be able to invest in them. Because you know what? When it comes to it, I'll sell five years before the person who didn't think about this stuff sells. This is all about packaging. Look, if it's one thing we've learned from Donald Trump and we go around the world, there's folks who hate him and there's folks that they love him, right? I got one of my, one of my guys is in Texas. Try saying something bad about Donald Trump in Texas, right? That's not going to go across very well, but go over to Europe and say something bad and they'll do it. But here's what everybody agrees on. Anybody who watched that Republican convention the other day, I don't care how left you are. Everybody who watched it's like, ah, shit. (laughs) <laughs> well the more left you are the more you might have been saying oh shit um, because, because fantastic he's a, at marketing because yeah. he's a promoter yeah. that's what he does my partner's actually has worked with him before didn't have great experiences with him but he worked with him on real estate with him before and he said he's the greatest promoter on the planet like right. be the greatest you don't have to be the greatest president on the planet that's where everybody he's not dumb all of us are dumb right because <laughs> we're judging him on being the greatest president on the planet no he should be judged on being the greatest promoter on the planet. And he wins that prize a million times over. Nobody touches it on him because everybody wants to buy him. And if we actually go even deeper into that analogy, Donald Trump doesn't even own, didn't even own the brand Trump. He made that brand so big, he sold it to the Chinese years ago. And he's making money on somebody else owning his name ever since then, right? So that's what's called making yourself brand famous. And that's what everybody needs to do within their own business. Number one, am I afraid that other accelerators may get our secret sauce as an accelerator by spreading around? Shit, no. I want them to get better so that we get better. I will share with them in my case, right? I'm not suggesting everybody does that. But in my case, I will share everything we do. I will share our programs. I will share our demo days. I will share our training. You know why? Because I want to make sure I put pressure on myself to do a better job in the next one. They can, everybody can copy what I did yesterday. Nobody can copy what I do tomorrow. And that's the brand that needs to be created. People don't want to acquire shitty companies that every single thing that they've ever done was in the past. Right. They want to be able to acquire aspirational companies that are building greatness in the future. So you need to build your domain expertise. You need to tell everybody about it. You need to make sure everybody knows what you're building and you need to create FOMO around you at all times. And most important, the thing that you're doing, you need to execute on and people need to see that you're executing. And then what happens is you create your 100 companies, your 200, your 300, your 400 acquirers. You make sure that those people are all aware of your existence. You make sure that all of those people are on your lists and they're finding out about everything that you're building. You're not sharing anything proprietary with anyone. And then they right. come to you and so they you say, make hey, sure you know they what? know who you are, not through your normal marketing, not because you're such a big name in the industry. Maybe it's a thing, but they need to know regardless who you are, because you're directly letting them know. Again, the account-based marketing type of thing, not to sell them your product, but just they have to know your brand. So maybe if they're thinking of acquiring a company like yours, they know you exist, um, is kind of what I'm getting from this. Like make sure they know you, you exist. Um, get, I love the get to know your potential acquirers. Yes, make sure when you go to trade shows or whatever, or maybe go to a trade show that you don't even go to, but they do. 
and make sure you shake their hands and talk to them and they start to know who you are. I guess the great thing with that is you're not even, you don't have an ask from them. So it isn't like you're, you're coming to pitch them your product. You're just pitching, getting to know them. <laughs> it's a lot easier when somebody buys you a drink and doesn't ask you to come back to their room to uh, enjoy the drink. Uh, <laughs> no, it's a hundred percent. Look, you, and, and so I'm not, I'm not sharing anything. I have nothing proprietary. Uh, I have nothing proprietary to worry about. I'm just doing my job and making sure that everybody knows about my company. And I'm being very consequential about the fact that um, I want to make sure that I'm the very best that I can be. And other people know about that. And they're going to want to buy us because they're going to want to touch that greatness in the future. So don't be shy. Don't be humble. Don't hold back. Don't keep stuff secrets. If I get one more person who says to me, well, you know, I have this company under stealth that I can't tell anyone about. Because, yeah, you know what, dude, you're never going to launch yeah. your effing company <clears throat> because you're going to be so busy keeping that thing under stealth. Nobody's ever going to find out about it. And by the way, nobody's going to steal it from you. God bless you. Well done. But you're not going to do it either. You see that probably constantly. I saw it when I was in the startup uh, community. The people who have an idea, but they won't share it to potential investors because they're worried somebody will steal it. <laughs> and the investor like, look, you just piss off. I don't want to hear your pitch. I don't, that, that includes nothing about what you do or anything like that. Um, so this is going by incredibly fast. There's way more to talk about here than I expected. I have a handful, unlike most podcasts of like actual questions I want to get to. Let's, <laughs> let's try to motor through these. Hit, hit um, me. Hit me. This is the fast round. Hit me. So if, if there can be one or two things that a potential acquires are looking for, um, what are they looking for? What can a company do to make themselves attractive? That, everything I just said. Everything we said, yeah. So yeah, brand, no, every, everything I just said. Kick They're ass just like, and develop brand. Yeah, like be brilliant at what you do and tell everybody about it. Okay. What about, um, one thing I noticed was companies where your potential acquires maybe exactly what you do isn't a good fit. But I see companies that seem to pivot in order to get acquired. So they say, here's what we do and we do a decent job of it, but this company here has this slot and we can start filling that and then they will want to buy us. Is that a common thing? Is that a good idea? No, it's, it's lucky. It's just lucky. You know, you be the best that you can be. And then, and you know, to the, to the point of the folks that I gave as an example at the beginning, if, if you just happen to have, because most of the time you don't know the slot that that company needs. Like you might know the slot that they needed two years ago, but right. that's not a slot they're going to need today. They just they're not buying for today. You. They're buying for a couple yeah, of years just, down just, the road. Just be the very best that you can be and find people who are very relevant in the space. And that's all. So, before you contact somebody, what, like, what should you be doing? What should you, what kind of prep should you have going in to talk to somebody about potentially buying your company? Like, you just want to make sure that you have the company, you have it yourself. First of all, the other person is a human being, like you're a human being, right? They have the same needs, wants, um, desires that, that you have. Um, and they're not going into the meeting to be sold by you. Right? They're going into the meeting because they have a need. So you go in, number one, if you have a meeting, you make sure that you're going into it with an extremely open mind. Number two, you should have researched the heck out of that company as far as knowing you know, who, are their, who are the individual people on their team, 
what are their accounts looking like? Are their numbers going up or are their numbers going down? Especially if it's a public company, that information is extremely easy to find. And you want to be able to look at the new innovations that they're bringing in right now. So like, for example, if I had been, if we rewind back and, and WeWork weren't in such a mess, then I would have gone to WeWork. Uh, if I'd wanted to sell, I would have gone to WeWork two years ago and I would have said, hey, you know what? You should buy Expert Dojo because we're going to be your innovation hub. We're going to be your innovation arm. You're going to buy us. We're going to do investments into companies. And then you're going to have like this entire ecosystem where you have inside, right? We know it's a good fit. So I know that's generally a good fit. Now I got to research Adam, O'Keefe, all of the other guys in WeWork who are the top people in WeWork and see, are there any are there any synergies that tie into maybe some of the talks they've done before about this? Like spend some time, right. listen to some of their podcasts, listen to some of the things that they're saying, like find out what it is in the market that's important to them that they're talking about right now. And mm. then also follow what's happening. So we work today or not, we work two years ago. So we work today, but we work in two years time. Maybe we work of two years ago. Or maybe so, now they have capital and need to pivot. They need another type, another you're business. Absolutely right. Been to because what they're doing is toxic or dead which, or whatever. Which brings me to my point. Put your arrogance and your ego outside the door. You walk in there from a position, power and listening. They're two very, it's a very, very strong formula. I'm going to listen. I'm going to ask you a ton of questions. I'm going to be a interviewer because I am not interested in you finding out about me today. Today, I'm not the most interesting person here. Today, my audience is the most important thing. And that's how you think about it when you're selling your company. And that's the opposite to what most people selling their company do. They walk in, they're like, hey, let me show you. Here's a, a slide and a chart. And this is why you should buy us. No, I want to understand when you wake up in the morning, what are the things that upset you? I want to understand what your marriage is like, what your kids are like. I want to understand what your team is like. I want to understand what will make you a happier person. Right. Because companies don't buy companies. People buy companies. So it seems uh, you mentioned like listening to if they've been on a podcast, stuff like that. The, the basic research to make sure you've done, um, you know, if you're going in to pitch your company to say, hey, we're going to be a good asset for you, a good fit. And this person has been out there writing articles or talking on podcasts about how they think it's dumb to buy companies in certain, in this situation. Like mm -hmm. if you don't know that stuff, you're going to come in completely. So I guess if they, if they're putting information out about this, if anybody on their executive team is, you kind of have to know that, or you're just walking into an ambush um, or coming in from the wrong sales angle, even pitching what a great asset you're going to be instead of pitching that they should buy you to get rid of you as a competitor or something like that. So you, I guess you kind of need to know what their purpose of, of buying would be if the information's available. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, and as I said, a lot of the time it comes down to just listening. Like don't go in there and pitch your company, go in there and find out what's happening within their company. What's important to them. What do they need you to do? Like what's, going to make them more successful. And right. then you layer your presentation in on that because I might go into a WeWork conversation with the arrogant impression that they desperately need expert dojo so they can make WeWork a stronger company, but everything might be in, in a whole different world in WeWork. And I want right. to find out what that, what that world is beforehand. So you should research beforehand. You should find out about the people more than the company. You should flatter them by going in there, by letting them know that you know things about them. And then you should say, hey, listen, I'm going to tell you my presentation. I want to tell you everything about us. I'm going to, by the end of this meeting, you're going to believe as, 
as will I, that this is awesome for both of us. But before then, I just want to understand a little bit more about you and then blah, blah. Right. Excellent. Um, so if let's say you're, you're thinking in the next five to 10 years, I might want to sell my business. Are you in a better position if you take on investors or if you don't take on investors? So are they more likely to buy you if you are kind of bootstrapped, self-funded, profitable, or if, if you have, you know, gotten series rounds of, of, of investment or does it not matter? I don't think it matters really. I don't think it matters. I think everything is, everything is relational. You know, it just depends. You know, the funniest thing in the world is like, if you ask WhatsApp, you know, what happened with Facebook buying them? I, I would guarantee you it just came out of the blue that just a phone call was made by someone to someone to say, hey, we should talk. Like focus on building. Don't, fo I, I, I always say this, even to high scaling startups, I'm like, don't focus on just selling your company. Focus on building greatness. Build the greatest business you possibly can and share the world, the bits you're not afraid about, right? Mm -hmm. But share it to the world. Let them see what you're building. When you're not sure what you're building, focus on what you're building, but build up your domain expertise all the way through. Make sure the right people know, know about you. That's all. So a small business set up a call. They're going to be talking with the CEO of a potential buyer, much larger company. Is there any like key vocabulary they may, I mean, they need to do their research and stuff, but is there, are there any keywords they need to make sure they're familiar with to not get embarrassed uh, when talking about selling a business? You know, there's like, there's like memorandums of understanding, you know, there's MOUs, there's um, term sheets that people will talk about. Um, I mean, but other than that, look, this is, it's like saying, you know, when you're getting married or the terms that you should know about getting married It's like folks either just want to work away for both companies to have a benefit or they don't. And generally speaking, if you're speaking to the CEO of another company and you're the CEO of your company, you're going to talk about that benefit. I think people just need to be more worried about not having an aggressive non-acquirer steal their information than anything else. Everything else is kind of irrelevant. Like I, I, there's plenty of meetings I've gone into and I'm like, dude, I have no idea what you're talking about. Can you explain? It's okay. It's okay this is not my job. That, yeah. I, I, I sell groceries. Like what the hell? This has nothing to do with me. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, this term meets this. Okay, great. Can we just make a rule that we're just going to speak in English from now on? Like we can just have fun and we can joke and we can talk about it. The most important thing is the structure that I spoke about in the very first example. You make sure you build a huge domain expertise in an area. Everybody finds out about you. The folks in your space start to fear and respect you because they see what you're building because you have a tremendous execution power in your own company and a tremendous Donald Trump promotional power in your brand. And as that brand grows, people start to see additional value in your brand on top of the sales or the profit revenue that you're already making. As that then happens, you then start building relationships with the same people who are going to buy you in the future. Or hell, who knows that you might buy in the future? Like you don't even friggin' know. You just know that these guys are beasts, are powerful, are influential people in your industry. And then as you build those relationships up, you then get to a stage where you're now being seen as a viable item for, for acquisition. And then it's all relationships from there on out. You just got to make sure your business keeps on being seen as attractive and that you keep on making sure that you're the person who's always seen. Like take Gary Vaynerchuk as a great example. Gary Vaynerchuk will probably sell VaynerMedia, not because VaynerMedia is a good company, but VaynerMedia um, is, is, is Gary Vaynerchuk's baby. That's it. Right. 
It has brand. I mean, he's basically selling the brand at some point, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so um, I, God, we've been going so long here. I think I have maybe one or two more questions. Um, general business looking to sell for, what'd you say? 12.5 million. That's a great number yeah. you threw out at the beginning. So a company thinks they're going to sell for 12.5 million. That's what they're hoping for. Um, what costs should they expect going into that? Like, is it going to cost them a million to go through the process of selling for 12 or is it just going to cost them one sheet of paper to print out a contract? Um, like what, what can they expect in the process of selling? You know, so look, selling, you have to get a great attorney. The great attorney is going to cost you money. Um, you know, if it's a long diligence process, your attorneys may need to be involved in that process all the way through. Um, again, it depends very much on the size of the company. Uh, if it's a very simple diligence process, you're still going to pay some tens of thousands um, to make sure that it's done properly. Um, you know, I've seen folks who paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to go through the process. Most of it is extremely heavily attorney, uh, attorney based and you don't care who cares. You know, because, and, and by the way, if you get a business broker, um, which is also an option as well, you're going to pay a couple of points on the sale for the business broker. Or if you get an investment banker to sell your company, you're going to pay a couple of points on the sale price right. for the so investment. You may not be paying up front, but you're going to pay way more on the sale price. Yeah, but it's okay. You know, if you sell, look, if you're in my mind, if the sale of my company cost me 10% of the company, which is a high number, by the way, but if it cost me 10% of the company, but my company sold for a far higher price than I could have got myself and my attorney right. protected me in a far better way, then I'll take it. Some people are very, uh, you know, um, they're, they, they don't look at the bigger picture and they're very focused on saving the dimes right now while, you know, the dollars are there waiting for them. So if you think you want to sell in the short term and you listen to this podcast, and you're like, I still don't quite know what I should be doing. Get a business broker because they know what, they, what you should be doing and let them manage it. Man, yes and no. Look, business brokers can be lazy the same as anybody else can be lazy in the world. And they could end up getting you the same thing. I would say, don't, rather than enter into this, you don't enter into a marriage wanting to get divorced, right? Enter into the relationship of your company wanting to build the greatest company has ever seen, no matter who you are. Build your domain expertise like you want the world to know that you've built the greatest business that there's ever been. And then during that process, if your circumstances turn to a place where it is better for you to get immediate cash as opposed to everything, then look at all of the other options, which include business brokers, which include investment bankers, which include going public, and which include selling to your partner, and which include reaching out to folks yourself. All of the above. All right. Um, makes sense. Makes sense. I guess you, you can't sell your business in stealth mode. Uh, you have to be very verbal and out there. And uh, I, main takeaways here I got uh, is the great thing about selling your business is marketing to be sold is very similar to the regular marketing you're doing. And a really big important part is to make sure you're kicking ass at what you do. Yes. It makes it all a lot easier. So yeah. if you market the shit out of it, they will come, but them coming doesn't mean they're going to buy. It still has to have a kick-ass product. <laughs> yeah. And I don't, look, I don't want to bring everything back to relationships on this podcast, but you kind of caught me in a relationship type of mood today. <laughs> it's the same as being desperate for a relationship. It's the people. You see them. You see them. Like, I don't care. If you're a girl, you see the guy who's desperate for the, for 
you see him in the bar, you see him at the school gates, you see him everywhere. I if see you're a guy, beer. you see the girl. Yeah. Like you just <laughs> see them, you see them. Like you don't want to be that person. Even though all of us have been that person at one stage, right? We don't want to be that person. When we look back and we look at that person, it's like, yeah, I remember her. I was like, oh my God, that was so embarrassing. That was a six month period. I should never have done any of that kind of stuff. But I said it and I did it and I think, and that's the same as business. If you look like you're desperately trying to sell your business, God bless you. You will sell nothing. And if you, you will have nothing but people come in and right. take advantage of you. Huge red flag for them too. Yeah. Like these serious buyers say, oh God, these guys are trying to get out of a burning ship. Yeah. Be the best that you can be. Boom. That's it. End of story. Awesome. This was really long for, for us even. It went over. We didn't take a commercial because I did not want to slow down and stop. Way too much interesting stuff here. Um, I would say anybody has any other questions on this stuff, feel free to reach out. Uh, reach out not to me. Brian knows about this stuff, not me. Um, on social media, maybe uh, what what else could people? What should people be reaching out to you uh, to you for? I know you don't buy and sell necessarily. You guys you guys are an incubator. Yeah, we're we're incubator accelerator. So we just hope our companies sell. <laughs> um, but we obviously we have a wealth of knowledge because that's all we do, right? We just want our companies to sell. So uh, yeah, I'm always happy. Look, any of your listeners, I'm always very very happy to give feedback and help and advice to. Um, and anybody can always reach out to me at brian at expertdojo.com, and they can get lots of information on how to grow and expand a business on expertdojo.com. So, but otherwise there's plenty of advice in there. It's not complicated. It's the kiss principle. Just keep it simple, stupid. Yeah. And I'd say somewhere in there, put in, put in the words, paranoid, be paranoid. Don't let people screw you. Yeah. (laughs) Kiss paranoid. (laughs) Keep it simple and paranoid uh, when you're trying to sell a business. Okay. Fantastic. Well, thank you for coming on, Brian. I want to thank the listeners, obviously for listening and uh, on behalf of the If You Market podcast and, uh, and the If You Market team over here and Brian McMahon of Expert Dojo, um, this has been the If You Market podcast where we believe if you market the shit out of it uh, or if you market the shit out of your business, uh, they will come and buy it. If you're not always on the lookout for new data sources for your sales and marketing, you're just not doing your job. I've got great news for you, though. You can go to topdatasearch.com, sign up for a free Top Data Search account, and use promo code IYM500 to get 500 contact download credits. Again, that's topdatasearch.com and promo code IYM500. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.